Well, good morning. You've heard from me a few times today, but my name is Zach. If you're new here, I'm, I'm one of the pastors here along with Pastor Sue. And on behalf of both of us, welcome. We're so glad you're here this morning. The past couple of weeks, we've been going through a series that we've been calling False Gods. And, and what we're doing is taking a look at, at the things in our lives that, that we have this tendency to worship, which is, is kind of weird language if you're hearing it for the first time, because we, we don't really typically believe that we have a separate deity. We, we don't believe that there is another God other than the God, Yahweh, that, that we worship here. We, we live in a monotheistic society, so, so if someone is religious, they typically believe there is one God, not multiple. But the way we live our lives often reflects the opposite. There are plenty of things that, that we tend to, to lift, to elevate into God-level status. Things that we turn to in order to provide us with, with things that only our true God can provide. And so that's what this series has been about. Um, there's a man named Alexis de Tocqueville, um, which I say with confidence to make you think that I actually know how to pronounce his last name. But he, he was a French political philosopher who wrote a book called Democracy in America in the 1800s. And, and he diagnosed America with what he calls a strange melancholy that haunts its inhabitants. He goes on to say that the, the incomplete joys of this world will never satisfy the human heart. And, and what he's saying is that the reason for the despair that we feel, for, for the melancholy is that we're looking for satisfaction in the wrong places, which is what idolatry is. We, we look to certain things to do what only God can do for us. And when we do that, we always walk away longing for more. And so we've been looking at, at things like love and, and money so far to, to see how they are false gods and, and offer us these false promises and have no way of actually fulfilling what we expect them to fulfill. And today we're going to continue that conversation by looking at the false god of success. To help us do that, we're, we're going to look at the story of a man, man called Naaman in 2 Kings chapter 5. Now it's little harder to find. So if you're in one of our Bibles, it's on page 529. That's 529. If you don't have a Bible, please talk to me after the service. I'd love to, to give you one. Before we read, let's, let's take a moment and ask God to, to enlighten our time in Scripture. Let's pray. God, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Help us rely on that word. And allow it to invigorate and, and motivate us to, to look to you above all else. Holy Spirit, open our eyes to see you. Open our ears to hear you. And open our hearts to receive you this morning. Convict us and turn us back towards you. For you alone are our one true God. And it's in you we place our hope and our trust. In Jesus' name we pray. All God's people said. Amen. All right, 2 Kings chapter 5, starting with verse 1. Now Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. 
He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. Now bands of raiders from Aram had gone out and had taken captive a young girl from Israel, and and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her, her mistress, If only my master would see the prophet who was in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means, go, the king of Aram replied. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten sets of clothing. The letter he took to the king of Israel read, With this letter I am sending you my servant Naaman, so that you may cure him of his leprosy. As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and said, Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he's trying to pick a quarrel with me. When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, Go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored, and you will be cleansed. But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought that he would surely come out to tell me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God, wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and went off in a rage. Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times as the man of God had told him, and his flesh was restored, and he became clean like that of a young boy. Then Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God. He stood before him and said, Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel, so please accept a gift from your servant. The prophet answered, As surely as the Lord lives, whom I serve, I will not accept a thing. And even though Naaman urged him, he refused. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Thanks be to God. So a few weeks ago, I was driving to the city, and and I almost always listen to a a book or a podcast when I'm driving, but for whatever reason, sometimes my phone won't sync up to my car, and and so in times like that, I do something that I never do anymore. I listen to the radio. And and because I rarely do this, I I have it set to a a certain channel. I used to be a big sports talk show radio guy. Now I'm a big sports podcast guy. So I have it set to a local sports talk show station. Now I don't know who these people are. I'm, I'm new here. I've only heard them a few times. Maybe they're legends to the area. I don't even know their name. But, but they were talking about the Golden State Warriors, as you do when you have a, a sports podcast. I hear the groaning. 
Don't worry. It sounds like more of you follow basketball than I expected, but, but if you don't, you know that they're having a pretty rough season. I hope you didn't watch the game last night. <laughs> it was a really good game, but sorry. Uh, if the playoffs started today, the Warriors wouldn't be playing in them, basically is what it boils down to. And as someone who roots for the Spurs, this delights me to no end. Uh, but the two hosts of this radio show were far from delighted. And they're doing what you're supposed to do as a sports radio host. You, you play GM. You, you pretend you're the general manager and try to solve all the problems that the team is having. How to, how to make them successful again. And, and their ideas were bizarre to me. Some of them were firing the coach, Steve Kerr, and, and trading Draymond Green and, and trading Clay Thompson. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you know anything about the Warriors, you know the last 10 years, they have been dominant because of th- these three guys, three of the four most important people on their team. They won four championships together, one as recently as two years ago. And before that, their most recent championship was 40 years ago. Four decades of losing, and then they spent a decade dominating. To the point where if if there was a year that they didn't win a championship, something that only one team in 30 gets to do each year, it feels like a letdown. And and now they might not even get a chance to try and win a championship. And and these hosts are calling for the heads of of three of the most important people in team history because they aren't experiencing the success that they're used to. I think there's a a couple things going on here, and, and I think they... They uh, are relatable, are are relevant to our lives as well. For success, experiencing success, makes the lack of success so much more difficult to endure. To be at the top of the mountain and fall down the mountain is so much more difficult than just walking around the mountain to begin with when we succeed at, at, the things, at, at things and we find our joy and our worth in those successes, when those are taken away from us, we lose that joy and the feeling of, of worth and value. For example, a, a few weeks ago, someone texted me after worship, simple text said, great sermon, best yet, which felt really good. Uh, we all like affirmation in our lives, right? I feel like what I did, what I was supposed to do, I I succeeded in my goal that through the the Spirit's prompting, my sermon connected with someone. And then I realized, oh, I have to do this again next week. And I didn't get a text the next week, which is fine. I I never expected a text in the first place. But once I got that text and, and then I didn't get the text, it felt like I failed, even though I just did the same thing I had always done. Second, the feeling of success is fleeting. It doesn't last long. When I was one of the most like proudest moments in my life, when I was in a, a freshman in high school about 100 pounds ago, I, I was really, I, I was pretty fast. I was good at track. I ran track, and my event was the 800-meter run, which is two times around the track, for those of you who don't know. And by the end of the year, I was the fastest freshman to have ever run that at my school, which I was really proud of. 
I was so excited, the most excited I've ever been at, at succeeding in, in anything. I, I broke a record that was 40 or 50 years old. Now, I don't even know if it was 40 or 50 years old. I don't experience the same joy from that moment as I do now, or as I did then. And that's what success is, right? It's just a bunch of, of little highs through our lives that, that don't last too long. But they're addictive. <laughs> you get that big sale, and, and you immediately want to move on to that next one. You, you finish that project, and, and you want to move on and, and finish the next one over and over and over again, chasing that win based on, on what we do. In fact, when we worship the God of success, when we place all our value and, and trust in, in how successful we are ourselves, what we're actually doing is worshiping ourselves. Tim Keller, in his book, Counterfeit Gods, who, who I'm pulling a, a lot from the series from, uh, he writes, more than other idols, personal success and achievement lead to a sense that we ourselves are God that our security and value rests in our own wisdom, strength, and performance. It's about what we can do, right? And when it's out of our control, we, we tend to, to freak out a little bit. And, and that's what we, we see in our passage today. This guy, Naaman, he's a man that, that radiates success. And, and you know that just from the very first verse. It, it tells us that, uh, three things about him. He was commander and the entire, of the entire army of, of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master, who was the king. And he was highly regarded. And yet, despite this undoubtedly successful life, he has leprosy. When we hear leprosy in the Bible, it often refers to a, a skin disease that is crippling and fatal to the victim. It's more of a blanket term for that a bunch of different skin diseases fall under, but, but it's almost never good. In, in, in that time, it probably had the same kind of connotation as, as cancer would today. Naaman had just about everything you could desire. He had power, he had money, he had, had popularity, and, and yet his body was, was rotting, it was falling apart. All of his success was useless to him. But then one of his wife's servants notices and, and believes that she knows of a solution. She, she knows of a prophet from her homeland of Israel who would be able to heal him. And this gets Naaman excited, so, or Naaman excited. And so he goes to his master, the king, and, and told him he found someone that might be able to heal him. And the king responds, by all means, yes, go, get better. We need you here. So he leaves to visit the king of the other land, Israel. Not the prophet, the king. He goes to visit the person who has experienced the same kind of success that he has experienced. And he brings all the tokens that represent his status, represent the success that he has. And, and which is, you know, a personal reference from his own king. Ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten sets of clothing. 
Naaman gets to Israel and hands the king his letter and, and offers him the money, expecting the king to demand the prophet to come and heal him on the spot. He thought that he could use his success to deal with his problems, which I think we tend to do as well. Something we can relate to. You know, if I get the promotion, I'll finally feel secure. If I hold my marriage together, I'll finally feel that happiness I've been longing for. If I raise my kids in the right way, they will go on to experience a life that I could never have dreamed for myself. If I bring enough tokens of my success, then the king will demand the prophet to heal me. And sometimes that works out. Sometimes it doesn't. Or at least not in the way we expect. For Naaman, it, it didn't. He goes to the king expecting all of his hard work in his life to pay off. But, but when the king hears what Naaman is expecting of him, he tears his robes, which is a sign of despair. And says, who do you think I am? I'm not God. I can't do this for you. I can't, I can't bring about life and death. Which is a hardcore blow to Naaman's beliefs. He thought, as so many people do today, that, that if you live a good enough life, if you worked hard enough and were successful enough, then God will bless you and bring you prosperity. That's why we have televangelists and, and megachurch pastors who, who brag about how big their houses are and how many private jets they own. Because they think if people see their success, they'll think that God has, has imparted a special blessing on them in a unique way because of what they have done. But we know that's not how God works. Naaman is pulling strings, he's dropping names, he's spending money in, in order to receive what he wants, which is typically how the world works. We can't blame him for trying that. But God isn't like that. Keller writes, Naaman is after a God who can be put into debt. But this is a God of grace who wants everyone else in his debt. Naaman is after a private God, a God for you, a God for you, but not a God for everyone. But this is a God for everyone, whether we acknowledge it or not. So Elisha tells the king to tell Naaman to, to go see Elisha, and when he does, Elisha doesn't even come out to meet him, which is a big front to his status. Naaman shows up at Elisha's house with, with all of his status and glory, and, and Elisha sends his messenger out, his servant, to tell him what he must do to be saved. Wash himself seven times in the Jordan River. It's that simple. Naaman's offended. Go wash in the Jordan? Me? Anyone can wash there. Wouldn't it be better for me to wash it in a nicer river like, like the ones in Damascus? Those are good. Isn't there something more dignified than this? This takes no ability or, or attainment at all from me. Which is the point. Wash and be cleansed was a difficult command because of just how easy it was. In order to do it, Naaman had to admit that he was helpless. 
that he couldn't go to God and say, look at all I have done. He was commander of an army. He was a great man in the sight of his master. He was highly regarded. But we're told in verse 1 something Naaman doesn't find out until verse 14. It was all because of the Lord. The Lord had given him victory. Naaman didn't succeed by his own merit. He didn't succeed, or he succeeded because the Lord had given him the talents and abilities and opportunities to succeed. He succeeded purely because of the grace of God. In the same way, he wasn't saved by his own merit. He was saved because God's salvation is a free gift. He had to acknowledge that. He had to acknowledge that, that he had nothing to give. He had to humble himself. The Lord looked at him and said, bring your nothing and I'll give you everything. And that message stands the same for you and for me. You can't earn the salvation that the Lord offers. You just have to accept it. Bring your nothing and, and receive. Receive the greatest success that there is. Be part of the greatest victory in history. Victory over sin and death. The, the success that, that had the appearance of failure, right? I, I mean, I can't imagine what it was like to be a follower of Jesus at that time. To spend three years with him in his ministry, following him and, and learning from him and, and soaking everything in that you can. And then see him walk to his death and be hanged on a cross. And just think, man, did I just waste three years of my life? Because normally for, for people, that was a failure. To die meant to fail. But through his death, Jesus brought this upside-down victory that, that is still sometimes difficult to comprehend, to understand. He, he succeeded in a way that, that we never could on our own. It, it's not a success that is fleeting, like the earthly successes that we experience, but one that brings everlasting joy to all those who trust in him. It's not a success that amplifies the failures, but instead, it's one that makes the failures obsolete. Success that's imparted to you by grace alone. One that sticks with you through all of the ups and downs of life. You see, there, there's nothing that you can do to earn God's grace. No achievements or milestones are necessary. Which can be really scary. I mean, for myself, I, I trust in myself more than I trust in just about any person out there. If I want something done right, I want to do it. But it's also freeing. Because there's nothing you can do to lose the grace of God. The grace of God shown to you through the success of the cross and the victory of the resurrection. The success and victory that you share with Christ solely because he invites you to. In a moment, we're going to have a meal together. 
we, we do this not because we're worthy to partake in this meal that, that unites us with Christ, not, not because of anything that we have done, but simply because we're invited. When we eat and we drink, we're, we're reminded how Christ appeared to have lost so that we could gain, that we could succeed, so that we can know the grace and forgiveness that he offers us. When we eat and drink, we humble ourselves in the same way that Naaman humbled himself to bathe in the Jordan. And in the 